Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. So now we're in this series, which we just started last week, on humility. It's like one of the most uh, important topics in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. I mean, it's in the Old Testament too, but humility is like core to Christian discipleship. And last week, we went through Philippians 2, which is like the high point of like Christian discipleship and view of God that we are to be like Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is humble. We serve a, a servant God. He humbled himself from heaven, and then he humbled himself to death. Today, I want to dive into, so throughout this series, we're just going to jump into like super uh, kind of famous passages in scripture that talk about humility. So last week was Philippians 2. Today, super famous one as well, James chapter 4, and this is kind of the title. I I do very artistic uh, work. See the black and white, the contrast? Anyway, um, James 4, 6 to 10. One of the most probably quoted passages in Scripture. You know what James is full of? One-liners that we Christians love to take out of context. And you're going to see a whole bunch of them in James 3 and 4, because we're going to cover two chapters today. But this is one of them. Here's one of the most famous James one-liners, for sure, on humility. We Christians love to quote this one. It says this, That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. How many of you ever heard that verse before? Okay, and the rest of you have never been in church in your life. Welcome here. Accept Jesus into your heart and be saved. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, we love to quote this verse, and it seems, you know, it's it's a very important verse. God opposes the proud, and generally when we quote it, we know who the proud are. It's someone else, and he gives grace to the humble, But I don't actually think this verse is helpful to us hardly at all the way we quote it. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't think hardly any of us have really any idea, and that includes me most of the time, what James means by proud and humble here. What is proud? Okay, so we quote this. God opposes the proud. So who's the proud? Think about it in your mind right now. Just take a moment and think to yourself, who are the proud? Is it Okay, maybe it's the guy who goes to the gym all the time and has a six-pack and gets up in the morning and looks at himself in the mirror. Is that the proud? If I had a six-pack, I would look at it in the mirror. (laughs) For sure. You know, you own less shirts when you have a six-pack, right? But, okay, is that the proud? Someone who looks in the mirror all the time and thinks they look good? Well, I guess then the humble must be whoever looks in the mirror and thinks and hates themselves. That must be the humble. If proud is... I like how I look, then humble must be, I don't like how I look. Is that what the proud is? Maybe the proud is, see, the fact of the matter is most of us, when we quote this verse, we kind of just assume and make up a definition, whatever just kind of comes to our minds. So for some Christians and throughout history, some Christians have just assumed, there's always a sect of Christians that assumes the proud is anyone with money. So anyone who drives a nice car, anyone who has a sports car, anyone who in uh, summer, God forbid, is on a weekend not going to church. Oh, wait. <laughs> you can do church. Sorry. In, on Wednesdays, we did that here. Anyway, bad joke. Uh, but anyone who has a ski boat and is driving out to the, to the lake, that is probably a proud person. 
well, if that's our definition, then obviously the humble are anyone who's poor. So that means everybody who's poor is humble, and everybody who is rich is proud. Uh, the problem there is just where do we draw the line? At what point are you rich enough to be proud? And usually it's whoever's richer than you. Isn't that true? Now, the sad thing is that for most of us here today, most of the world could look at us and say we're rich. So if we're going to say that the proud is if you're wealthy, you're automatically proud, and if you're poor, you're automatically humble, it's going to be hard to draw that line, and most of us are going to be in trouble, okay? Now, can rich people be proud? Yes. Can a bodybuilder be proud? Yes. But can a rich person be humble? Yes. Can a bodybuilder be humble? Yes, I think. I've never, never met one. Really, I don't know if I've ever met one at all. So we have to define these terms. Now, how are we going to define it? Well, generally, because we like to quote Scripture in, one li in one-liners, that's part of our problem. We're going to have to look at what James is all talking about. But before that, let's just finish. Oh, man, I've taken all this time on verse 6. Let's get to verse 10 before we start going around. So he continues. Here's another famous one-liner that we love to quote. I just, James is so fun because we quote James all the time. Here's what he says, the very next verse. By the way, he's not on a new topic. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What does that mean? That's another one we quote. Generally, what does that mean is I'm under spiritual attack, and so I'm going to resist the devil, and then you just fill in whatever your assumption there about resist the devil, but it's some kind of prayer maybe. It's some kind of wording you use. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What, but what is James talking about? Is he just throwing out one-liners? All of this has to do with each other. Well, let's keep going. Come near to God. Okay, so remember where we started here. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. We quote this as, okay, new topic, resist the devil, spiritual warfare. Next verse, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Generally, we will quote this one. To say, okay, you should do more devotions. By the way, doing devotions is a great thing to be doing. Spend time with the Lord. Absolutely. But that's how we quote this. So we have each of these lines just has a whole sermon series behind it for us modern Christians. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. And so we see this passage Starts with humility, ends with humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And again, my only problem with this verse is we quote it, but what does it mean to humble ourselves? If I kneel, am I now humble? If I kneel when I pray, have I humbled myself before God? If I go without food, have I humbled myself before God? How do I do this? How do we do these things? What is James talking about? And can we have any confidence that we can read these passages and apply them in our lives in such a way that actually this is a real thing that the Bible's talking about, or are we going to just be stuck kind of making our own assumptions and guesses? So the two big questions we have to ask from James chapter 4 are, who are the proud? And lots of things are going to come into focus then. And what does it mean to be humble? Okay? And to do that, we're going to have to look at the context of what's happening in this letter. Who is he talking to? And what is the problem that needs to be solved? But before we get there, I have to give one more one-liner. Verse 4, which comes just before this passage I just read you, says this. 
It's another one of these one-liners that we all know. Super famous passage. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Now, this is one of the ones where preachers like myself, I've used this verse many times in the past to make people like you guys feel guilty. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is where it's very easy for us preachers and sincerely doing it. And whenever I've done it, I've done it sincerely too. But this is where we preachers go, anybody who is a friend with the world. Now that phrase, friendship with the world, has connotations to us in modern times that it did not absolutely have in James's day. And I'm going to show you that as we go through the context of this passage. But when we think friendship with the world, what do you think when you think friendship with the world? Who is a friend of the world? Well, it sounds a lot like, okay, is this someone with a gym membership and a Netflix subscription? Like they're enjoying life a little bit too much. Actually, not just Netflix. Maybe then you're still not friends of the world, but if you have Netflix, Prime, and Disney, you are certainly a friend with the world. You're certainly a friend with the world then. And if you have any nice things, if you have a good time in life at all, if you have too much of a good time in life, that is friendship with the world. You are one of the proud, and James is calling you to repent. Okay, well, if that is the take we're supposed to find, then we should find it throughout the book of James, and we should find that as the problem. By the way, the people who he was writing to were poor. So that's the first thing I'm going to say to you about friendship with the world. Nobody in the, in, in the, in the Christian churches that James was writing to, I shouldn't say nobody, the vast majority of them, were absolute dirt poor. Materialism was not their problem in James. Materialism can be a problem, but materialism was not the problem James is dealing with. These people were poor. So what is the problem? What's the context of James chapter 3 and 4? Well, if we go to the beginning of James 3, James 3 is an entire chapter about the tongue. Specifically, I'll quote kind of the high point of chapter 3, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. By the way, I want you to notice here it doesn't just say curse Christians. Okay? It's not like it's bad to say bad things about other Christians, but it's okay to say bad things about everybody else. Human beings who have been made in, the, in God's likeness. This is the entire chapter 3. is all about the tongue, and it culminates here, okay? Why? The problem with the Christians that was happening in, when James writes this letter is these Christians are fighting and quarreling. We're going to get to that, okay? So if we just go a little bit further here. James gives the contrast. In the first 12 verses, he's talking about don't use your tongue negatively. Don't use your tongue negatively. Don't use your tongue negatively. And then in verse 13, he flips it to the positive side. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility, there's humility again, that comes from wisdom. Okay? That comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts. What's the opposite of humility, according to James here? How's he using humility? The opposite of humility is selfish ambition and envy. Okay? So, good way to be with your tongue is humble. 
okay? Bad way to be with your tongue and behavior, bitter envy and selfish ambition. By the way, we should just stop here for just a moment too. Because there's a tradition within Christianity that sometimes thinks that anybody who has any kind of ambition is automatically proud. Now, is that true? Is James saying that anyone who has any kind of ambition, like uh, an athlete who trains really hard to be successful and wants to be the best athlete they can be, they want to win the gold medal, they want to win the Super Bowl, they want to, whatever it is, they want to be the best, is that's ambition. Is that what James is talking about? It, to be the best, if you want to be the best, let's say you have a, a business or a ministry organization and you want to make it the best business or the best ministry organization you can possibly, you, wanna, you, you, you just want to make it the best, you want to make it the most successful. That's ambition. Is that what James is talking about here? And the answer is no. He's talking about selfish ambition. Ambition, healthy ambition on its own, is a wonderful thing. I mean, what drives people to make the world a better place? Usually it's some kind of ambition, okay? James is talking about selfish ambition, okay? The opposite of humility is unhealthy ambition, not ambition. It's when you want power at any cost. I mean, you know, a person who runs for, you know, someone who wants to, let's say, be premier of Manitoba, okay? That, that's ambition. You want to be the premier of Manitoba, that's ambition, right? It's maybe not as big as being something else, but premier of Manitoba, that's ambition for us Manitobans, okay? Now, is that a bad ambition? Well, no. If you, want to, if you have a plan that you want to make Manitoba a better place, now you might be right or wrong about that plan, but just wanting to help and to serve and to put your plan into action, that's not bad. But let's say you want to be premier of Manitoba just for the sake, your lust for power, and you want to use it to gain, you know, financial gain for yourself or, or for your friends. Power at any cost. Money at any cost. You'll, you'll cut corners. You'll take advantage of people. You'll cheat. You'll win at any cost. Winning isn't sinful, but winning at any cost. Sinful. Get my way at any cost. Sinful. That's the opposite of humility. This is what is happening with the Christians. This is why a huge part of the reason why James is writing this letter. There's factionalism. There is fighting. They are abusing each other with their tongues. And then this brings us to chapter 4. And remember, in the original, there's no chapters and verses in these letters or books in the original. They're there to help us find stuff, us modern people. There's no chapter break from 3 to 4. 3 and 4 are all part of the same part of the letter. So James 4 is a continuation of James 3. James 3 was all about this problem. These people are abusing each other with their tongues. There's selfish ambition. There's envy. And so James goes on to say, what causes fights and quarrels? This is the problem. Fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, we have to stop here for just a second because kill. Whoa. We North Americans just read that. We immediately read over it and we go, oh, that's obviously, well, we don't even consciously think it. Clearly, this must be a metaphor. Right? Like, clearly, he's just using kill in a metaphorical sense, kill. But one of the things we have to realize here is ancient culture was a lot more violent in our culture. If, if you read any of the best commentaries on James, you will find 
it might not be metaphorical here. Okay, you have to remember, first century Christianity is part of a brutal society. We evangelical Christians have this strange thing that we constantly think that our day and age today in Canada is the worst period of time ever, and it's only getting worse. And yes, there's lots of bad things in the world. But let me just tell you right now, if any of these Christians were fast-forwarded in time 2,000 years and came to Canada today in 2022, they would be shocked at the improvements. These people were exposed, regular everyday people were expo ex uh, uh, exposed to brutal violence on a very regular basis. Roman society was brutal. I mean, people, they would hang people on crosses along the roads. The Jewish culture within that was also very violent, steeped in Old Testament violence and that tone. And there was, I mean, think of Acts. What was Paul? Okay, James wrote this book, not Paul, but what was Paul doing before he became a Christian? He was running around to Christians, dragging them, beating them, killing some of them, throwing them in prison. Now, we always just read over that and go, oh, yeah, that's persecution. But think about it. That is not persecution like what we think of persecution today. When we think of persecution today, we think of governments persecuting Christians. When Paul persecuted Christians before he became a Christian, he wasn't a government official. He's not a Roman official. He's part of the dominant Jewish sect. And to them, it is acceptable that there's this other sect that we don't like. So we will go, we will beat them, we will imprison them, we'll do all those sorts of things. And in that culture, much more acceptable than today. We can't even almost conceive of how violent that, that culture was. So maybe James, and you have to remember, there's also zealots in this church who grew up their whole, their whole life was about killing. Maybe this is a metaphor, and it might not be. At the very least, there are probably violent fights, screaming matches and fist fights. That is what James is talking to. That's what the Greek, you go behind on the Greek here, that is what these words mean. These people are like really fighting. It's kind of like, you know, we sometimes, again, we are so, we live in a vastly much better, more peaceful society today than they did. And when we complain about what our politicians do to each other, what we're complaining about is like nothing compared to what politicians in these days would have done. It'd be more like, if you ever, I don't know, if you ever go on YouTube, just look up like, you know, some parliament, like look up uh, fights in parliament and stuff like that. And you'll find from other countries, some of you have no doubt seen this on the news, but you'll find places that are democracies that are much more violent societies than ours here in Canada. And you'll find people in their suits and their ties and their dresses, and they start arguing, and all of a sudden there's like a brawl, okay? This is way more normal throughout human history than we realize, okay? So this is what James is upset about. He's saying, you got fights and quarrels, physical battles, abuse, okay? Verbal and spiritual, okay? This is the context that James is addressing in chapters 3 to 4. So chapter 4 is not a compilation of one-liners that have nothing to do with each other, where James is just firing out, don't be a friend with the world, and resist the devil, and humble yourself. All of this is part of a theme, a deep problem 
in a church. These people are fighting and abusing, yelling, tearing down. They're fighting with each other. So now as we start to go through some of these one-liners, we find out they're not one-liners. They're part of a context. They're probably part of a solution. James is challenging these people to live differently. So we go back to verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is not talking here about materialism. That's a different sermon. That's a different part of the Bible. These people aren't wealthy enough to deal with materialism. These people are fighting with each other and tearing each other down with their tongues. So what does he mean by friendship with the world? Friendship with the world in James 4 here means friendship with the ways of the world. And particularly the ways of the world he's talking about are fighting with violence, anger, backstabbing, verbal abuse, etc., whatever, to get your own way. When Christians do that, whether we are right or wrong, when we use the world's ways, we're always what? Wrong. Trick question. You want to know what friendship with the world is? It's not about being right or wrong. Whether you are right or wrong, when you use the world's ways, that is friendship with the world. And when we use the ways of the world, we are always wrong, regardless of whether we're right. Friendship with the world is friendship with the ways of the world. James is talking about fighting with violence, anger, backstabbing, verbal abuse, and all of that. But now we come to the next one-liner that isn't a one-liner. It's all part of the topic. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. What is pride in this passage? What is humility? They're not nebulous feelings. It's not like, well, that person's a little bit full of themselves. They're the proud that he's talking about. And I feel less about myself, therefore God is in favor. This is not a nebulous thing for James. When he says proud, he's not like, yeah, you know, it's just this general group of people who are confident. No. When he says God shows favor to the humble, it's not, oh, this nebulous group of people who have low self-esteem. That's low self-esteem is not humility. It's unhealthiness. God made you in his image. He loves you. Pride is an action in James 4. The people who, it's not a feeling, the people who abuse, the people who tear down, the people who attack, the people who use power and control to get their way are the proud. It's not a nebulous feeling, it's an action. Who are the humble in James 4? It's the people who are Peacing, loving, and gentle, and reasonable. And by the way, I'll show you that. You're like, oh, it seems to me like you're making up the humble. Oh, we'll, we'll come back to that. I'll show you the verse. But let me just put this up there for those of you who, who really like to take notes. But the proud, those who fight, abuse, and tear people down verbally to get their own way. The humble are those who are reasonable, open to conversation, gentle, and peaceful. Okay? That is what James is talking about. Actions, not feelings. Now, just so you don't think Chris is making this one up, let's go to the verse now where James actually defines for us what he's talking about. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. By the way, you start to sound a bit like a broken record when you preach the New Testament. Didn't I just talk about some of these things last week in Philippians 2? I think I did. Why? This is central to what it means to be a Christian. Someone who is like Christ. Someone who is following Christ. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. By the way, I have to put something in brackets here because the NIV translates the Greek there, submissive. When we think of submissive, we just think of someone who maybe just has their head down and anybody just tells them what to do and they, they just do it right away. Uh, more the connotation, and so like the, the NASB, the ESV, a number of the other translations translate it open to reason or reasonable. The Greek word here has the connotations you can be approached and you can be talked to. You can be approached and you can be talked to. That's what a humble person is. Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. We could have a great sermon. We could have a revival if we just sat and stared at this for 30 minutes every week and then went out and did it. This is central. This is not peripheral. This is not a rabbit trail. This is what it means to look like Jesus. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. They reach a harvest of righteousness. Now, the question is, because everyone here, and that includes myself, you're going to have a place. Well, first of all, everyone here is probably thinking, what group of people is Chris thinking about? So who is Chris trying to nail with this sermon? Or you just have your own assumptions, and it's like, okay, so this is so-and-so, because they're on Facebook, and they say stupid stuff on there. He's, he's getting them. Get them. This is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So who is this for, and where do we apply this? Good question. Everywhere. Where do you apply this? Parenting. Whoa, no. Humble parenting? That doesn't make any sense. This is some kind of newfangled thing. This is some kind of new age weirdness. When we say jump, our kids should say how high on the way up. Amen. That's exactly right here. It's in there somewhere. Let's not look at that, okay? Marriage and relationships. What? Workplace. Remember James, he said human beings. He's dealing with a church that is, you know, possibly punching each other in the face. And people have been injured. At the very least, they are very verbally abusive to each other. We do not have that level of fighting here in Crossview. Nor do we in most churches in this area. Okay? I don't know of any where the cops have been called to break up a fight. Thank God. So it's very easy for us to think, oh, I'm so glad he's talking to those crazy Christians back in the first century. What about society? This isn't just, he does not say here, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all towards Christians, brackets, towards Christians, be peace, loving, considerate, open to reason. No, it's Everyone. 
It's everyone and everywhere. This is who Jesus is. This is the whole central section of James. This is how we're meant to live. So let me finish by giving you two potential scenarios, which are completely unbelievable and have never happened to any of you. From the parenting side, and now you think, whew, I'm not a parent, I'm not married. Here's the beauty. If you can do this here, you can do this anywhere. And you will see the applications, okay? So, situation number one, no, none of you has ever faced, none of you has ever done this, okay? Your child is in the basement playing video games. You look at your watch, it's 8 p.m., it's bedtime. Toby, I hope we don't have any Tobys here. So you yell down. You're already far too tired to go downstairs. You were already that tired at 4.30 when they came home. Toby, it's 8 o'clock. Turn off your video game. Brush your teeth. It's time for bed. And of course, in my family, if Toby was my child, he would say, Yes, Daddy, love you. Can you pray to Jesus for me tonight? And he would brush his teeth and go to bed every night. <laughs> if you believe that, I have some things to sell you. Okay? Now, you have two, cha you have two choices here, right? You have... You're not going to think of James here because this is not practical in that moment. It is very impractical. And that's not how your parents raised you and they went to church all the time. <laughs> so you now have a choice. Toby says, but I'm in the middle of a game. I don't want to come up right now. I'm right in the middle. Now you have a choice. You can be one of those parents and you're too tired. And by the way, all of us will do this at some point, but that doesn't make it okay. You drop that controller right now and you get up here this instant and you are going to bed. I told you, how many times have I told you you're supposed to turn it off at 8 p.m.? Okay? None of you has ever done that. Okay? I have never done that, right? Now, there's a second option. Okay? There's a second option. And the second option is... Uh, well, actually, there's probably hundreds of options. But we could deeply meditate on James and think about the ways that we move people to do things without abuse and control and force. So I wonder what would be a full of open to reason, sincere, considerate. By the way, how many of you as adults love it when someone tells you, drop what you're doing right now, it's time for supper. How many of you like that when your spouse says, just drop it and talk to me? <laughs> you lie, Richard. <laughs> Confession time after. <laughs> you don't like it. Your kids don't like it. You know, there's different ways you could handle it. One other way you could handle it is you could say, because you could remember to yourself, I wouldn't like it if I was told suddenly to just drop it in a moment. And you could be open to reason and sincere and all those sorts of things. And you could say something to the effect of, okay, honey, you got five more minutes to finish that level, then I want you to come up. That actually wasn't so hard, was it? It might still not work. 
But I'm going to tell you something right there. You try that is way different than you drop that thing right now and get up here. The feeling is, every, is very different. By the way, which kids grow up to be the healthiest adults? Which kids grow up to be the healthiest adults? The ones who grow up in homes where there is no sense of negotiation or compromise, everything is black and white, everything is a hard yes or no. Wonderful, healthy people, look at you all. Or people who grew up in a home with a sense of their own power, there's some give and take. There's some meet you in the middle. We could shrink this down to a few different words that essentially sum up the passage. Humility means using persuasion. Because again, humility is not a feeling, it's an action. And it's not just for parenting, it's not just for church, it's for the workplace, it's for your relationships, it's for society, it's for everywhere. What if we used persuasion, compromise? I'm not talking about compromising your values, I'm talking about negotiation, meet in the middle. Gentle in its usage, gentle in its tone, versus pride, what we see in James, power, control, and force. One more scenario, and then no more scenarios. And then we'll pray. But just to let you guys kind of think this through. Remember, I've just encapsulating some of these words, what it means to be humble. Something a little easier to remember. Imagine your teenager doesn't anymore want to do something you want them to do. I don't want to take my music lessons anymore. I don't want to play that sport that you're vicariously living through me, Dad. I don't want to blank. Now, you have ways, again, you have options. You can respond. I spent 500 bucks on that tuba, and you're going to play tuba till the day you leave this house. Or you have other options. One of your options would be in the moment not to say anything. Hmm, and just listen. Now, how do we use humility? How do we use there's power, control, and force. These are easy to use, but the results can be super messy. These take longer. Sometimes you have to think. You have to bounce some stuff off your spouse. You have to experiment. And even after you try these things, sometimes it doesn't work, so you try them again. Or maybe you take your kid out to something. Maybe it's you take him. He likes hockey. She likes hockey. Take him to a hockey game. On the way, just ask them, like, why don't you want to play tuba anymore? Like, how could you not want to play tuba? doesn't make sense. I played tuba. Your grandpa played tuba. Tuba, tuba, tuba. No. Take him to a game. You ask them, why don't you want to play tuba? And you actually listen to them. Oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe in the end, the compromise is, maybe tuba was your thing. It's not their thing. Or, this is why it's so darn messy, Maybe it's still important to you that they do whatever it is that you want them to do. So now you probe in there. Because humility means, this is wisdom, by the way. Foolishness is formulas and force. Wisdom is messy. There's no one size fits all. It's relational. Considerate, open to reason. Listening, conversation, impartial, sincere. What do you think? Is this important to us? 
Maybe you come up with some kind of reward system. If you please, pretty please, play the tuba. It's really important to me. I'm unhealthy. I'm getting therapy, but I'm just not there yet. But in the meantime, I will, whatever it is, I will help you go on this trip you wanted to go on, or I will buy you, like literally, it could be rewards, it could be whatever it is, but you meet in the middle, and you talk, and you work it out, and you negotiate. By the way, you're teaching your kids invaluable tools and lessons when you do this with them. I would rather be married to a person who grew up with parents who did this than with parents who did this, wouldn't you? These people are often quite broken. They were real nice when they grew up because they just did everything their parents said. Now imagine if we applied these principles, not just in our parenting, but we applied these principles in our workplaces, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. We truly became like Jesus everywhere. Imagine what a different place the world would be if the people who called themselves Christians were actually like Christ. I want you just to bow your head for a moment. And I want us to take a minute. Sometimes just at the end of, you know, we've listened to some stuff, we've looked at some stuff. You can't apply this in your whole life right away, but this is James. This is the big chunk of James. The central part of James is humble power. This is how we work with people. Through persuasion and compromise and gentleness, not power and force and control. So where do you need a bit more humility in your life? Not humble feelings. We're not looking for feelings. We're looking for humble action. Actions of persuasion, compromise, and gentleness. Maybe it's needed in your workplace. Maybe it's needed in your social media. Maybe it's needed in your family. We definitely need more of this in our society. Thank you, Jesus, that you are, were humble to us. That's the most amazing thing. The reason we're meant to do this with our kids is because you did it with us who are your kids. Jesus, help us to grow in humility. Not false humility, but real humility. Action. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.